Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. This is my favorite time of the year, uh, mostly because the weather is really wonderful outside, and you all know how much I like to complain about the weather here in New England, but also because we are solidly into what I like to think of as essay writing season. Uh, And for all of you rising seniors, you need to be thinking about this as essay writing season two, even though you really want to be thinking about this as hanging out at the beach and eating ice cream at night season. It is not that. Um, With that in mind, we are talking Common App essay prompts and supplemental essays today. So you're not going to want to miss that if you are a senior or you are getting ready to be a senior in a year or two. Um, but before we get to that, I'm really excited to welcome our next guest who was able to pay off $81,000 in student loans in three years, which is pretty massive. And she writes a blog called Dear Debt Blog, uh, and her name is Melanie Lockhart. Hi, Melanie. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Very excited to have you join us today because, uh, as you know, many of our listeners or all of our listeners are in the process of figuring out college. And that, of course, includes paying for college and, in some cases, for some people, going into debt. Ideally, not too much debt, but debt nonetheless Mm -hmm. to pay for college. And that's what makes you a perfect guest for us today. Um, So my first question for you, you have both an undergraduate and a graduate degree, and you took out student loan debt to get both of them. Given what you know now, what might have you, would you have done anything differently in your, in your pathway, your education pathway? You know, I definitely would do things a little bit differently. Um, And first of all, I would like to just clarify, I did take a little bit longer to pay off my $81,000 in debt. Um, I paid off the majority of it in the three years that I started my blog, Dear Debt, but it was kind of a, a long process over the nine years, and that kind of relates to what I would have done differently. So, you know, as you mentioned, I got two degrees. I had my bachelor's degree in 2006, where I owed $23,000, and then I got my master's degree in 2011, where I had an additional $58,000, which, you know, makes up the wow. $81,000 total. Mm-hmm. But for the first five years when I just had my undergrad, I just paid the minimum and, you know, treated my student loan payment like a bill when I could have technically afforded to pay more. And mm-hmm. so, you know, really once I graduated from NYU, that's when I really, you know, started to realize how much debt I had. And then when I started my blog, that's when I really supersized my payments and decided to get out of debt and, you know, paid off around 60000 in around three years. Mm-hmm. But you know, I would have definitely done that differently. I wish I would have paid more those first five years because I could have afforded to pay more, but I treated it like a bill and thought, oh, it's a minimum payment. You just pay the minimum and that's all. And I paid so much in interest that I didn't need to. So, you know, that's definitely something I would have done differently. And something that I did do right with NYU is that I decided not to take out the full amount that they gave me. So they actually offered me $89,000 in student loans. Wow. Mostly to cover, you know, rent and everything in New York, but I also had three part-time jobs. So, you know, I just took out what I needed for tuition and books and then really worked a lot so that I could afford, you know, the rest of my bills myself. 
Got it. So, yeah, it really it comes down to in many ways, it's it's less about that you wouldn't have gotten your graduate degree, but more that you would have taken those first five years to get rid of. Because $23,000 from an undergraduate degree is not an excessive amount of money to have in loans um, when yeah, you graduate. Yeah, it wasn't that much at all. Right. But when you add on top of that... Um, an amount that gets you to 81000 Now you're in a different place. So what, speaking mm-hmm. of, what was the breaking point when you s- decided, you know, I am going to break up with this debt and I need to change the way I'm behaving and the way I'm thinking about the debt going from the point you were making? It's not just a bill and I don't want to just pay the minimum amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it kind of really happened at two points. And so the first point was, you know, after I graduated, I was in denial about how much student loan debt I had. I actually created a Mint.com account and, you know, synced up all of my loans and my income and everything. And I saw that even though I had, you know, paid for five years and, you know, took out more loans, I still had, you know, $68,000 of student loans left when I graduated. And I I completely panicked and I deleted my Mint.com account a few days later. And I was like, I cannot deal with this. I'm going to pretend that my loans don't exist. And, you know, about six months later, when my grace period was up and I had to pay back my student loans, I still hadn't found full-time work. And I realized I couldn't afford to live in New York anymore, you know, in addition to paying my student loans. And so I moved to Portland, Oregon, where it was cheaper. And, you know, that was kind of point number one. It's like my life was being affected. My life choices was you know, were being affected by my student loan debt. I felt like I couldn't live where I wanted to anymore and that I had to move. So that was number one. And then number two, I continued to struggle in Portland, Oregon, getting temp work for 10 to $12 an hour, trying to struggle to make payments. And really at the end of 2012, I just hit a breaking point and thought I cannot continue to live like this, being so depressed and anxious about my student loan debt, always worried about money. This interest just keeps accruing every day. And so January 2013 is when I started my blog, Dear Debt. It's a blog about breaking up debt. And the concept is, you know, writing Dear John letters to debt, so Dear Debt. And Mm -hmm. that really changed the trajectory of my debt repayment because it helped me create a community of people who were cheering me on. It was kind of my declaration of saying that I I can't live like this anymore and I'm going to get out of debt because I don't have a choice. And, you know, that was really kind of the, the beginning of it all. What were some of the sacrifices? I would say a massive sacrifice. I lived in New York for six years when I graduated from college and I loved every second of it and hated leaving, even though it was time (laughs) for me to go. But so I could see that as a massive sacrifice to have to leave New York. Mm -hmm. Were there other sacrifices that you made once you finally started writing the the blog and, and you know, obviously you did something because you were able to pay off a significant amount of money in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, you know, I didn't have health insurance at that time, and this was pre-Affordable Care Act, so I just went without insurance, and that, you know, mm-hmm. saved me close to $200 a month. Um, I split a small studio apartment with my then partner, and I also didn't have a car, and I didn't really go out and... So I kind of cut back in every single way that I could. And then, you know, I realized that I had cut back in every single way and that I kind of hit a plateau. And I thought, well, I'm still not making the progress that I want. Like, how can I continue to do this? And I realized that my only option was to earn more. You know, Mm -hmm. at a certain point, frugality can kind of hit a plateau. And I hit that plateau pretty quickly. And I realized 
I have to earn more. And so that's when I got into side hustling. And so I went on TaskRabbit and Craigslist and, you know, found my friends and I started to work as a pet sitter and I started to work as a brand ambassador and as an event assistant. Um, I worked as an event assistant at a Jewish congregation for their holidays and I got gigs as an event assistant for people's 40th birthday and I worked as a brand ambassador for Starbucks and Columbia Sportswear, pretty much any legal gig that I could do, (laughs) I would do to make extra money and I would say for five years, I did work about seven days a week Mm. and, uh, you know, probably towards the end of that with, with my blog, you know, I realized that I could write and that I had um, the opportunity to write on my blog. And that's when I also discovered that other people were, you know, getting into freelance writing as a side gig. And I thought, you know, I'm doing all of these side hustles around town and, you know, going here, there and everywhere. Like I would love to write from home. You know, mm-hmm. I have a master's degree, so at least I know I can do the basics of writing. And so because of my blog, I started to pitch other financial outlets and blogs, you know, to write. And I got started with a freelance writing side hustle. And a year after I finally found a full-time job making $31,000, I actually quit that job to become self-employed as a freelance writer and an event planner on my own. And actually, that move really helped me. I know self-employment can be risky for a lot of people, but for me, actually, it worked out because I was able to double my income that first year from 31000 to 60000 mm-hmm. And, you know, I was still able to keep my expenses extremely low. And so, you know, being able to make that much progress on my income really helped me pay off that debt. Got it. Got it. And I can't help it. I'm sitting here. I'm a mom. Um, I have a 15-year-old and I just don't ever want him to go without health care. So I hope that that was not a sacrifice you made for very long, because as we all know, should something have happened, that might have catastrophically landed you much farther in debt. Um, so mm-hmm. anyway, I just have to throw that out there to the, all the parents who are listening is, um, yeah, we don't no, want our kids to go without scared. that. It's, it's not a good idea. I, I did it for a year and it was, it was terrifying. Okay, good. Only a year. And I'm so happy that nothing bad happened. So yay. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to listeners who currently have student debt? And one of the things we know about student loan crisis is that there are people out there who are parents themselves and sometimes parents of kids who are old enough to go to college who still have their own student debt or parents who are co-signing on their kids or taking out loans and incurring their own debt. So for, for those people who are either students or parents or have debt themselves, what advice would you give those people? First of all, I would say don't internalize your debt. And what I mean by that is that you are not your debt. So for a long time, you know, I thought I'm in so much debt and, you know, my net worth is my self-worth. So I'm, you know, useless and I can't believe I made this mistake and I got into so much debt. And it was really kind of that shame spiral and that guilt and that anxiety that prevented me from taking action and kept me in denial. So I would say you have to work on your mindset first. And I know that sounds kind of new agey or cheesy, but it's really important to kind of accept that you are not your debt and that you are not a bad person. You didn't make a mistake. This is unfortunately the system that we're in right now. That's step number one. And step number two, really look at the numbers. You know, if you were like me, you kind of knew how much you owed, but not really. So I would Mm -hmm. say look at the numbers exactly. How much do you owe? What are the interest rates? And I would suggest calculating the daily interest because student loans accrue interest daily. And when I did the math, my interest was accruing $11 per day. And that just, 
made me so mad. I realized, wow, I'm paying $300 plus a month every month in interest, which, you know, is a round trip flight from LA to New York, basically. And that just, you know, I felt like I was just wasting money every month. And so I, mm-hmm. I used that anger to fuel my repayment. And so I would say, get really, you know, close with the numbers, know exactly what you owe, and then figure out a strategy. So, you know, there's the debt avalanche plan, which is focusing on high interest loans first while paying the minimum on the rest. There's the debt snowball method, which is focusing on the smallest balance and then paying the minimum on the rest. And then two other strategies that I that I talk about in my book, Dear Debt. Um, number one, you can pay off the debt that keeps you up at night. So debt is very emotional. And sometimes there's one, you know, loan that you're just like, oh, this loan is making me so anxious. I can't sleep at night. Pay off that one because your peace of mind is priceless. And another um, suggestion I have is pay off the loans that, you know, make you angry. So, you know, maybe not student loans. Maybe if you have credit card debt from an ex or, you know, debt from a different situation, or maybe you just don't like your college, you know, definitely (laughs) pay off the debt that makes you angry because, like you said, debt is a very emotional process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think all of it's great advice and a really good reminder that there isn't necessarily one way to go about it. And maybe there is one way to maximize how much your, how far your money goes. But when emotion comes into play, sometimes that that's the thing that might fuel you the most. And clearly getting mm-hmm. angry enough or, you know, to actually make changes in your life to make the, the payments is a, is a strategy that worked for you. So I would certainly recommend mm-hmm. it to our listeners. And then on the, um, on the other side of that, what advice would you give to listeners who are in the process of deciding where they're going to go to college? And they are um, many of them, if not most, considering taking on some debt in order to go to college. Yeah, I would say definitely look at what you actually need and not what you're offered. So like I said, NYU offered me $89,000 and luckily I only took out the 58000 thank goodness. Mm-hmm. So don't just accept everything that's offered to you. Really calculate exactly what you need. Um, I would also suggest, you know, looking into part-time work because I, I'm a fan of of students working while in college because I think by the time you graduate, you'll already have some experience that will help you in the real world. Um, number three, also really look at the schools that you're choosing. And this is coming from someone that went to their dream school. So NYU was absolutely my dream school. I thought mm-hmm. I would never get in and I got in and I was so shocked and literally no one could have told me anything. <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> yes. tried to tell me like, oh, are you sure you want to go to New York? Are you sure you want to take out that much debt? A lot of people tried to tell me, trust me. So no one could have changed my mind. But, you know, now that I was on the other side and I realized how much debt I was in and you know, that this whole kind of dream school idea of going to a really good school didn't necessarily have the real world results that I was hoping for. So realize that college is all about your your network and your education and kind of what you can do afterwards. And sometimes it's not necessarily just about the school. So really look at the big picture. Um, I totally understand if you go to your dream school and no one can tell you anything because no one could have told me not to go to NYU and get into all that debt because I was, you know, very stubborn and excited to go. But I think it is really important to look at all of your options. And if there is a more affordable option that 
can give you something comparable, that can make a lifetime of difference in your future because that means you're paying less debt, means you're paying less interest, means you could save more, means you can have an emergency fund and start saving for your retirement. And, you know, I always say when you're paying off debt, you're paying for your past instead of your present or your future. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about that. Amazing points, uh, things that we encourage families to think about every single day in the conversations we have with them and with students, of course, as well. Um, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. And to the listeners, just as a reminder, Melanie has a book, Dear Debt, and a blog, Dear Debt. So if you are interested in learning more and um, about her approach, you can um, read the blog, pick up the book. Um, so thanks again for your time today. Thank you. All right, when we come back, we're going to be talking about choosing your Common App essay prompt. So uh, give us a couple of minutes and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. We are back as promised, and I am excited to talk to all of you in the audience today who are working on college essays or who know that you need to work on college essays, but you're thinking, well, it's July. I don't really need to worry about that yet. You need to worry about that. 
now, not yet, now. So um, I'm really excited to welcome my current colleague here at College Coach, who also happens to be a former admissions officer at Tufts and Northeastern, and who also was a college counselor in New York City um, back in the day as well, Jen Simons. Hi, Jen. Hey, Beth. It's so good to be here. Thank you. No, absolutely. I'm really excited to have you here. And um, what I wanted our listeners to know is that the actual the idea behind this segment was sparked because you have a number of students coming to you and trying to strategize over the best common application prompt to choose. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about that sort of struggle that you're seeing them go through and your thoughts on it? Sure. So basically, um, you know, when you work in admissions as an, as an admissions officer, you, you deal with hundreds of families, you know, that visit the school and, and you talk to lots of people, but essentially you're talking to people that are interested in your particular school. And so it's not really an accurate subset, if you will, of the college going population and their families. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like my job, uh, you know, here at College Coach really enables me to see just, you know, a whole, you know, spectrum of, of families and students um, across the country and even the world. And what happens is, is that I, I start hearing things because I talk to different, you know, kids, different families every day. And if I hear it more than a couple of times, I'm like, hmm. And what happened was it kept on coming up that students were asking which prompt was the best prompt to answer for the Common App, you know, essay prompt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some version of that. And finally, I said, why, where, why are you asking this question? The best essay is the one that you write that, you know, and, and what I love about the Common App, obviously, is that it has, you can basically write about anything um, mm-hmm. you want. You can just Right, you know, and and they were saying that the you know, and I am embarrassed not to have realized this, but that the Common App publishes which prompts were the most popular last year, and you know they talk to each other and they say, well, if I do one of the less written ones, you know, the less responded to ones, then I'll be, my essay will be more unique and then I will be in the minority and that will therefore make me more appealing than the ones, and I was just like, oh, no, 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 like (laughs) that's not, that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah, so, (laughs) so, you know, I agree that there is something, you know, certainly that's what we're here for to help you strategize a little bit, but that level of like, you're, no, that's no, they don't, I, I even said to a couple of them, I have to be honest, I didn't even know, and I, I'm saying, I'm making this very personal because I realized that this is probably not true of other admissions officers, but in my entire career, I didn't even necessarily know which prompt the student was answering, nor did I particularly care because basically I was reading an essay, and I knew that it was going to fall into one of the prompts, or it was going to be whatever they wanted to write about. So it didn't, it didn't always, you know, occur to me that they were even answering a particular prompt versus another. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that I, when I was at Penn, we we were not on the Common App initially, and so we had our own unique questions. What when it would occur to me that I about the to wonder about the prompt would be if it didn't seem related to any of the three prompts we had available to them, then I would say, 
what are they even writing here? It didn't seem like it was for our application. But with the common application, I completely agree. At that point, it kind of drops away and you're really more focused on the story the student is telling. Uh, a couple, when you brought this idea up to me, I had a moment of panic because about five years ago, four years ago, I wrote an April Fool's Day blog that ran on April 1st. And people, when you see blogs that run on April 1st, that seem like, huh, is that really possible? (laughs) You have to remember, it's probably an April Fool's Day joke. But I wrote about the top essay prompts chosen by students applying and getting into Ivy League schools. I mean, there was so much about the blog that was clearly false, starting with the fact that it came out we had supposedly managed to poll 250,000 students. By the way, that not many students do not get into Ivy League schools um, every year and whatever. The, but the whole point was that I put out there into the ether this idea that there might be a preferable prompt as a joke. And then my fear was, oh, my gosh, did I start this? But no, fear not. It's the Common App who is including that percentage breakdown. And like you say, I don't think... If, unless you've done this work, how you don't understand how much something like that, which seems like, oh, hey, here's helpful information, how that can be twisted and misconstrued and just turned on its head in a way that you would never imagine, where you would have people in your office saying, well, I think I need to write about this because it's the least common prompt, which that's crazy. Right. It is. And what I also find fascinating is that the difference in percentage points between the prompts, I mean, we're not talking about one prompt is answered 10% of the time and the others are answered 90%. I mean, they're all answered pretty much as frequently, you know, with give right. or take, you know, two, three, four percent. So it's, it's not even like a dramatic, from what I can see, um, a dramatic difference. Not that it matters, but it, it's, it, we're really talking micromanaging this, you know, process a right. little bit. Right, exactly. Micromanaging the process in ways that have zero impact. Um, right, but right, who knows right. that, it, you know, if you're not sitting in the seats that we have sat in or that we currently do. So, but let's, I think one of the things that we talked about that I, I think our listeners would find really interesting would be taking us through your reading process when you were an admissions officer so we can understand, better understand how the essay fits in and, and therefore probably why it matters less which prompt you choose. That's fair. But first, I'm just going to ask you a question, which is based on what you said before, the pen, one of the pen prompts, was one of the pen questions uh, fill out, you know, page 200 or whatever of your autobiography. Was that yes. a pen question? Okay. It was a pen question, the reason yes. I know that, see, so that, the reason I know that and the reason I remember that all these years later is because one thing that does matter tremendously is, is making sure that beyond the Common App, which mm-hmm. is exactly what it sounds like, Common Application, go into all these different schools, that you are answering the specific supplements for um, that school if they have supplements and if you have to write a very unique essay for another school that has their own application, Georgetown, but you don't repurpose that for your common application essay because admissions officers will see more than one of them and they will realize, hey, this is really an unusual topic of your choice to be, you know, completing your autobiography. I wonder where this comes from. And then they will Google <laughs> it and then they'll be like, oh, this kid wants to go to Penn, not Tufts or wherever. And so that, you know, we're talking very much about the common application. Right. No. That is essentially your point. Very good um, point. But, so, 
when I was so so when I was reading and, and of course you know I've read applications in paper form I've read them on the computer now everything's computerized thank goodness and so essentially what you do um, as a reader is is what admissions officers say and this is true is that for academic institutions the most important thing is the transcript so usually that would be the first thing I would look at so anything that had to do with numbers to put the kid in the context of their class in a numerical way but by the time you're done processing all the sort of numerical parts of the application, standardized testing, and you know, and and the transcript, and looking at their um, GPA in the context of the courses that they're taking, you get excited because this essay is the beginning of the process that you are going to use to know the kid, and. What you were doing, or what I was doing, I, let me make this about me because, you know, right, this is about me. Um, I wanted to sort of read a story about this, this student, and I wanted there, there to be no missing chapters. Like, everything should sort of confirm everything else. And with each document, I would learn more about the student or confirm what I already knew. And so the essay, you know, I just saw that, okay, this is the student's really one opportunity to really talk about themselves. And Every other thing in that that's written in that application, whether it's a teacher recommendation or a counselor recommendation, um, even the extracurricular list would serve to sort of cement what I thought I already knew um, and reinforce it or to give me new information that sort of was another puzzle piece, like putting together the puzzle so I could picture the student. Um, I liked the essay best when I met a student on the road or even if I had met them on campus or I'd email with them and then I, like, you almost could hear their voice. You could picture them, which, believe it or not, is not as rare as, you know, you think it would be even for schools that get thousands and thousands of applications. You do, you do remember students and, um, you know, sometimes they follow up with you. They certainly don't have to, but sometimes even if you don't know the student, just being able to hear that voice. And so, you know, you have such a short amount of time to read applications, right, Beth? I mean, it's mm-hmm. like yep. constant, like, so you're just sitting down at your computer now. For me, it was always, you know, the middle of the Boston winter, and often I was still in my pajamas, and, and you know, admissions officers will tell you that, and you get up really early, and it's still dark, and you open up that essay waiting to be told the story of the student and waiting to learn something about them. And so, you know, whatever prompt they're answering was irrelevant. You just wanted to dig right into it. And quite frankly, you had to dig right into it because you didn't have too much time to do anything else um, and start reading. And the first sentence, you know, I talk to my students now about this, but, you know, there is a lot of pressure, of course, to come up with a really strong first sentence, as any writer, you know, will experience. But I do think it's particularly important with an essay. It doesn't have to be dramatic, certainly, or over the top. But that's, that's what you're going to read. And then, believe it or not, what I would do is I would actually go down to the end of the essay, and I would read the end, and then I would read everything in between. I don't do this with novels. I don't do this with articles. But I did this with essays, and I don't know why, but it sort of helped me focus. I know that sounds really weird, but you had to really read it. And I'm lucky. I'm a fast reader. My colleagues that were slower readers um, really struggled because you have, you know, as I said, very little time to do everything. But the essay... 
was so important because, and as, as I said several times before, it is the student's voice. So I'm going to actually breathe now for a second, Beth, so you can, <laughs> in, you can say whatever you want to say now because I, I, there's no way that I can see you saying, stop talking, Jen. So, <laughs> Well, I love listening to you, and I think you're sharing really great information. I, you know, a couple of things that occurred to me as you were talking, one of them was that first sentence is very important, and it can, it doesn't have to be anything specific, it, but it should grab your reader's attention. So if your essay starts with, in the summer of my senior year, or in the you know in July of ninth grade, um, you're in you dug yourself a hole. That's going to be tough to get out when of. When I because was eight I'm... years old, <laughs> yep. When I was eight years old, when I was a child, when I I yep. have loved music since I was a little girl. Like yep. <laughs> it's, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm bored. I'm already bored. And yeah, you know, again, you 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 really as an admissions officer, you take your job super seriously. You really do want to read those essays. Um, it's in such an important component. At Penn, I was going to be talking about them when I went into the committee room, and I wanted to have something to say about every single one of the students that I was presenting to committee that day. And so I read the essay and I took notes on it. And uh, you know. Uh, not all essays were particularly great. And so sometimes my feedback was point and I would have a question mark as in, I don't really know what the point is here or standard because it was sort of just, I wasn't learning anything particularly compelling. But when the essay was really adding something to the application, I was able to sum it up in a line. And then if I really, you know, felt like this culminated in, you know, it sort of was the really nice exclamation point on an already strong application, that's when I made my choice of what I was going to advocate for, either admit um, I wasn't sure I needed to see the rest of the pool or leaning away, deny, right? So um, Mm -hmm. it, it isn't, the essay is not everything, but it is an important piece of the whole. And, and the only other thing that I would clarify or not just add would be, you are telling a story, you're not telling your entire story. Because Oh, absolutely. Right? You and I could fill rooms with novels of our entire story, all the things that have happened to us in our lives. Um, even at the age of 15, I'm fairly certain that my own child could tell many different stories about his life. You have 650 words to tell one story. And it's that is another big mistake that I do see students do is they don't edit or they they try to cram every single thing they've ever accomplished into that one place. And and that doesn't really work either. Um, Jen, as we wrap up, we've only got another minute or so. What um, what final thoughts would you share? And and you know, I hopefully people have gotten the point by now that it's less about the prompt. I actually have my students start with the idea, and then we worry about which prompt it prompt it works with later. Curious if you do something similar. Oh, I absolutely do. What I instruct them to do is I say, "Tell me a story." with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I absolutely agree with you that it, this isn't your life story. That's not what I mean by story. I mean, give me an anecdote. Give me a little slice of your life. And it's like any good tale, it's going to start. It's going to have some maybe drama, if not drama, some sort <laughs> of like, okay, where are we going with this? And then it's going to conclude and resolve. And absolutely, we fit it into a prompt after because we know that we could we could make it work However, you know, in whichever prompt we want, because we have that prompt of our choice. So that's absolutely what I do. Beginning, middle, and an end. And of the three components, 
um, for this purpose, the beginning and the end are going to be the most important because you know they'll get read. Yes, very great point and a good point to end on. Thank you so much for joining and sharing um, your experiences in reading essays. And uh, for all our listeners out there, I I hope they um, took something really valuable away. And I certainly did. I always do. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. All right, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're actually going to be talking about those supplemental essays, which we sort of briefly alluded to in this um, segment, but we're going to dig into those a little bit more in the next one. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We've been talking about essays, and I have been bludgeoning the seniors in the audience with the message that now is the time to be writing those essays. Um, And we're going to continue doing that by talking about essays. Um, But... We are focusing now about on supplemental essays, and joining me for the segment uh, is Lauren Randall, who's a former admissions officer at Georgetown University and also a former college counselor um, at a high school both abroad and here in the U.S. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? 
I'm good, thanks. And thanks for joining us today. Um, We just talked about the Common App, the primary essay in the Common App. And one of the things that came up in the conversation was um, supplemental essays or were supplemental essays. And I think my first uh, question for you today is, Tell us about what supplemental essays are for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with that. Sure. Well, I think that's one of the big misconceptions out there is, yes, the common application or the coalition application has made life easy that you write one big essay and all the colleges read that. But I think the misconception is that students believe they they might be done after that. That is all that they have to write. Um, and that is not necessarily the case. Many colleges will have school-specific essay requirements um, or what we call supplemental essays. So additional writing that you do just for that college and only that college will see it. So it is in addition to that main essay. Right, exactly. So this idea that you're going to write one essay and you're going to use it for every application is a false one. That is not how things are going to go down. You're going to have to write these. Next question, of course, is, well, why? You know, you have the Common App. Why do schools ask for these additional essays? Sure, and I guess I should also say that it is case by case. There is no, um, there's, there's no standard that, some colleges will require many uh, supplemental essays or, or several. Some will require one. But there are many, many colleges out there that don't require any. So you might just mm-hmm. have that one big common app essay and be done for that college. So it truly depends on your college list. But for those that want more writing and writing just for their institution, well, why? They are trying to figure out know why they're on your list why you're applying what are you a good match for their school Um, so they want to know that you are willing to do a bit more work uh, just for them right exactly and so as an example I would give um, there are a number of colleges that will ask what in essence is a why this college essay and um, we'll be talking about some of those in future segments over the next couple of months but essentially what they're trying to figure out is exactly what you just said why is this college a good fit for you what is it that you see here that's going to help you achieve your goals Uh, and they're looking for you to be specific in those and they're looking for you to do more than simply check a box and say oh well you know I can afford the application fee why don't I throw another application in here. And I I do think that one of the big purposes of these is to prevent exactly that type of behavior, which we strongly discourage here at College Coach. Right. You should not have a school on your list where you're just throwing an application in to see what happens. That is a bad idea. Um, Mm -hmm. With that in mind, how, how do you suggest that students think about the supplemental essays um, when they encounter them? Because you're right, they're not going to be at every school. And at some schools, it might be something small. And at others, it could be a very extensive uh, additional almost portfolio of extra essays that Mm -hmm. you're working on. Sure. And we can talk about how to find them and when to find them. But the first thing to know is, is what you have to write. Because if you have a list of 10 schools, you could easily, potentially, I guess, have 
uh, at least 10 additional essays, 20 additional short essays. It really depends on your college list. So you need to know what you have to write for each school, the length. But the, the point here is no matter what they're asking, whether they're asking why this college or if they're asking, tell us more about your favorite activity or uh, we can go through some other ideas and examples, um, the 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 point here is that they want you to be narrow and specific. So yes. if it is if if it is why this college, they are looking for the granular details. Um, you know that that is not just the obvious. Uh, for example, you know at, at Georgetown University, if you told me it was located in Washington D.C. and it's highly ranked, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I know that, but so is George Washington and American and Catholic and Howard. I assumed you're applying to all of them. So it doesn't right. really tell me anything more about why my college and why it pertains to you on a, on a very uh, specific level. But the same thing goes with if it's asking, tell me more about your activity, your favorite activity. Well, I already have some information from your activity list. So just to say, well, I do soccer and I... I put in 12 hours a week. I already know that. So I want to know a a greater depth and detail about what it brings to you, the joy it brings you, the impact (laughs) you're making, why you do it. So they're really looking for um, that uh, a very narrow and specific, uh, the the details um, for it to come out. But of course, it depends on, on what they're asking from you. Right. And and I think a great point that, that you just made. And one of the things that I, as my students start to think about their supplemental essays, one of the things that I say to all of them is think about the things that only your or the people who know you well know about you, right? So if it's your parents who know you best, what are the things they know about you that maybe others might not? Or is it your closest friend? Or And it can be things that are really serious, but it also can, and I encourage it, be things that maybe you would see as a little more frivolous. So I had a student mm-hmm. once write, you know, we're here in Massachusetts. She grew up in Massachusetts. And I would say this was before country music became a little bit more poppy and widespread. And she listened to the only country and Western channel that was available here. And she listened to it 24-7. She was mm-hmm. oddly obsessed with country music. And she wrote a short, probably 250-word essay for a school about that and when you read it, you learn something about her that maybe some of her closest friends knew, but many other people probably did not. And you felt like, oh, that's what a cool thing to know about her. And so I also encourage you as you think about potential topics for your supplemental essays to think in those terms. It doesn't all have to be serious and and academic and unless you are only serious and academic and most people are not Mm -hmm. only one thing, right? It's an opportunity to showcase maybe some other sides of who you are. Well, just to piggyback off of what you just said, I think that I completely agree with thinking about some of, um, I guess we can call them quirks, but also does that jive with what they are asking of you? So, you know, when, when you said that, it brings to mind, uh, you know, lot, we should also mention the, the, pro, the supplemental prompts have not necessarily been updated. So if I give some examples, this is what I know from last year. But last year, Caltech, um, most 
people would think of that as uh, a very intellectual, uh, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, ner- nerdy kind of place. But they asked about sense of humor and what do you like to do for fun? So, so th- if you have a deep passion for country music and that's what you do for fun, that could really jive with what they are specifically asking. Um, but if you read that prompt and you said, um, <laughs> I'm not really a quirky person. Uh, you know, I don't really, humor is not my thing. This isn't jiving with me. You need to read into those supplements as well and maybe ask yourself, well, what they're asking of me, does, am I, does this really line up, you know? Right, <laughs> with who I am. Why, why they're on their, why they are on your list. Yes, yes. I, and I counter that. We, we, I use this example frequently, and it's not to pick on Chicago, but the University of Chicago's prompts are very unique, very challenging. Mm-hmm. If, and, and quite honestly, they're very challenging for students who probably shouldn't be applying to Chicago. But for students who are that kind of Chicago kid, they get excited by those prompts. So when you're looking at the mm-hmm. supplements... If you are terrified and you your first inclination is, I, I have nothing to say here of value, nothing occurs to me, it, it might be a sign that what they're asking in the supplements, they're trying to get at some element of who you are as a student, as a thinker. And if that doesn't come naturally to you, you might be setting yourself up to be in an environment that isn't the best fit for you. And I do sometimes say that to students when I think I suspect that Chicago has wound up on their list because it's prestigious, quite honestly, and that's mm-hmm. really the only reason. And then when they're struggling to think about anything for one of the supplements, that's that opens the door to having that conversation sometimes because it truly is not for everyone. And I think that's a great example. And, and there are a number of schools out there with prompts that might feel a little, whoa, I don't really know how to deal with that to you. That's not necessarily an immediate sign that it's not a good fit, but Um, but I think it's a good time to take stock of, is this, why is this on my list? I think that is really great advice. Um, any other examples or or things that come to mind when you think about students and supplemental essays in general? Yeah, well, I can't help, but when you brought up Chicago, um, I immediately think of Columbia University. Uh, now, this sounds really easy because some of Columbia's supplements are just, well, at least last year, were just lit. <laughs> so they're not writing essays necessarily for all of them, but three, three of the lists they ask you to make are about what you love to read. And I've had students before say, oh, okay, well, I, I don't like to read, so I need to come up with something good. And this would be easy. It's just a list. Well, hello, wait a second. They're telling you that this is a red, red light alert here. You know, if you don't like to read, you, you are not going to be happy here. So even if it's not a full essay, you know, anybody can come, probably come up with a list of books. But if it's not authentic to you, then you really need to think about your match. And I totally agree with Chicago, too. If you can't get through an essay, how are you going to get through four years? It, it is right. an indication of, of, you know, your fit for that school. Definitely. It, yeah, but at that's the end exactly. Of the day, mm-hmm. Yeah, at the end of the day, I, I really believe that this is the opportunity to, to, yes, tell them more about you. But it's really about your place or your fit with that institution. Um, so it, it needs to be a you know, love letter of 
source. It is why, what are you attracted to so deeply at a deep level? You know, your soulmates here uh, about that institution. Going with the obvious um, is, is not going to, to flatter them. Um, or if you, you know, can't get through this, this love letter of sorts, then, then you're probably not that authentic. It's right. probably not a great reason why it's on your list. Well, right. And and actually, that brings up um, one other point I want to make before we get to the where and when students can find mm-hmm. these supplemental essays. And that's simply um, when you are going back to the why this college essay, which is probably the most common supplement that you'll find, and you'll find it at highly selective institutions, you'll find it at not as selective institutions. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly common choice, um, is that this is not an essay meant to, it is a love letter, but it isn't flattery for flattery's sake. So you never want to write what your point, you know, oh, well, you're really highly ranked or you have the best program in chemistry. I already believe that my institution is an amazing institution. I'm looking to understand why it's an amazing institution for you. And simply telling me that, oh, the chemistry department is amazing tells me nothing other than that maybe you can read our marketing literature, right? So if it reads like marketing copy, you haven't done a good job. It needs to be much more... Um, as you said, specific. And so I love that the chemistry department has a focus in organic chemistry. I, you know, and whatever that is, I picked a really bad example because chemistry and I are not friends, but wherever (laughs) you might go with organic chemistry, um, what your goals for your future are and how the, 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 them being good in that would be a positive for you. Um, those are the things you want to highlight. Okay, now I've left you approximately 30 seconds to talk about the where and when students can find these supplements. Well, I tell students to take a big pause. Month of July should really be about the common app main essay because most supplements are released after August 1st. That is when the common app really goes live for the next year. So a lot of colleges won't update um, until until after August 1st. You might find some on the college's website itself, um, so you can prepare if you want to do a little bit of searching. But after August 1st, you should find them in the Common App. Um, but it's once you search for that college, you attach it to your Common App, then with just within that college's page in the Common App, you will see if there's additional writing. It might say writing, it might say essay, it might just say questions. So you have to do a little bit of searching. And again, not every school has it. So if you don't find anything, you know, don't panic. Not every school has a supplement. Right. Absolutely. Lauren, thank you so much. Thanks to all my guests today. Next week, I'm back hosting. We're talking about changing changes in the admissions world over the past year. Um, federal work study versus student employment and subject tests. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.